Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. The rise of gender dysphoria. Archbishop Paul Coakley of Oklahoma City has issued a letter clarifying church teaching on the unity of body and soul. With the percentage of young people who identify as transgender having doubled in the past few years, how should church leadership respond? gender ideology in schools. Many parents feel increasingly in the dark when it comes to what their children are being taught about their gender. Mary Hassan, the Catholic author of a book that advises parents to pull their kids from public schools, shares her expertise on this matter. State activity. Several states are taking action to enshrine policies that deny biological sex and put minors at unimaginable risk. But the state legislature in Nebraska is making moves to protect their children. Marion Minor, the director of pro-life and family policy at the Nebraska Catholic Conference, joins us to share more. From advertising to medicine and school sports, almost every facet of society has been touched by gender ideology. One bishop just became the most recent U.S. church leader to issue guidance on the truth about sex and gender. Archbishop Paul Coakley of the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City released a pastoral letter called On the Unity of the Body and Soul, accompanying those experiencing gender dysphoria. In a recent interview with EWTN News In-Depth, Archbishop Coakley explains his motivation to publish the letter and why Catholics need to encounter people who struggle with gender identity with compassion. There's so much confusion in our culture about sex and gender uh, and uh, the whole so-called trans movement going back to the book of Genesis. I, I mean, uh, male and female, he created them, man and woman. Uh, I think uh, I th think what's happening is um, is a is in our culture is is a clear rupture with with this with with human experience and and human history. Not to say uh, the church's living tradition and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the biblical foundations for the church's uh, teaching. Recent reports show that the number of young people who struggle with gender dysphoria has skyrocketed in recent years. According to Axios, over 20% of all people in Gen Z, that is, those who were born between 1997 and 2004, are saying that they believe they no longer have the same sexual orientation they did when they were born. They refer to themselves as part of the LGBTQ community. This is nearly double the 11.2% of millennials who also have gender dysphoria and reject their biological sex. These numbers represent a sharp rise compared to the generations before them. Just over 4% of Gen X says they are LGBTQ, and among baby boomers, just over 2.5%. Who and what is causing so many young people to ascribe to this? Mary Hassan, who is an expert on this, joins us now. She's a fellow with the Catholic Studies Program at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's also the author of a book called Get Out Now, Why You Should Pull Your Child from Public School Before It's Too Late. Mary, thanks for joining me and being willing to share your expertise on this. Let's get right to it. What's happening in schools on this front? And, and why are you encouraging parents to pull their kids out of the public school system? Well, unfortunately, we've seen an acceleration 
in the public schools of just the adoption of a belief system, what the Pope calls gender ideology, but it's a belief system about the human person that is 100% at odds with the Christian understanding of the person, natural law, common sense, science. But this is being promoted to children top down. In other words, it comes from uh, the highest levels, the Department of Education. It comes from the state departments of education, oftentimes school boards, principals, but also bottom up because we've seen activist teachers and activist counselors who are bringing this into the classroom, even if the school has not adopted a formal policy on it. So it's unfortunately just saturated our kids' educational environments, particularly in the public schools. And that's something that parents need to be really, really vigilant about. And in I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's time for action. You really have to look and say, is this a situation that's going to change in the short time that my child is in, in school? Mm. Or are they vulnerable right. to these ideas? Right. It's coming at them from all sides. And Mary, it's staggering to me that nearly 20% of young people today are identifying with, you know, this... Um, with gender dysphoria. Can you put this into perspective for us? Um, how have these ideas really just permeated our society in this way? How has it gotten to this point? Yeah, so the stat actually is that about one in five, and, and I recently saw a stat saying it was about one in four, are identifying as part of the LGBT community. So that's the whole rainbow coalition, everything gay, lesbian, bisexual, and, and transgender. But what we have seen is, um, and. Uh, really high spike in the number of kids who are identifying as transgender. And that's about 10% in 9.2% um, in a, a study that was done of high school students in Pennsylvania. And to put that in perspective, in the past, the percentage of people within the entire population who would struggle with questions of identity or, or distress over their body was a fraction of a fraction of a percent, 0 0.002. Mm -hmm. And so to go from that to about 10% of our young people being uh, so confused that they're rejecting the reality of a male or female body and identity is just staggering. So we know that's not something that happens just naturally as, as sort of the course of, I don't know, confusion that persists from one generation to the next or, or circumstances, adverse circumstances in someone's background that could contribute to this. What we're seeing is really the product of culture. Mm. It's being driven through the schools, through social media, peer to peer, and unfortunately by many of our institutions, increasingly counseling, healthcare, um, entertainment, government. So it's uh, it's a formidable problem. It's, it's very difficult for parents to figure out how they can keep their kids safe, how they keep them grounded sure. in the truth about who they are. Yes, yes. And Mary, you mentioned social media. And, you know, one trend is that not only kids, but their parents, whole families are addicted to their phones. You know, they're sitting around the dinner table all looking at their phones. How do you combat this, um, this addiction to screens? Because technology is such an important part of this battle. Right. And technology is, you know, in and of itself is not a bad thing. The problem is that social media and the um, the temptation really to be glued to your screen makes you less responsive to human beings. And so one of the things that we're seeing with young people is that once they start plugging into the phone, they become addicted. 
But the algorithms that are, are programmed into social media platforms in particular are designed to do that. So they're designed to keep the child coming back for more. And those algorithms will feed them content that is... Uh, is just corrupting and, and oftentimes very explicit sexually, but also violent or disturbing. And so our kids don't have to look for it. And that's one thing that I think parents need to realize is very different from the concerns that parents have had about pornography, for example, for decades. This is different because it is fed directly to our children and they don't, they don't have to go looking for it. So you really have to encourage them to realize, use the phone as a tool. When you need it, you pick it up and you use it. You have to call someone. You have to be in touch with someone. But it's not supposed to be how you relate to people. We need sure. to encourage a restoration, really, of person-to-person, face-to-face contact. And, you know, we know from some of the studies that have come out, too, that our young people are longing for that. Mm. It's built into the human person to desire to be in someone's presence, to to feel someone's hug, to uh, to engage with people on a personal level. And so this, this virtual community communication can be useful, but it's it's changing the way we think. And unfortunately, it's impoverishing our relationships, uh, which changes the way this youngest generation is developing. Right. And that that's a great point. And Mary, what's being done to save our children from all of this? You know, you mentioned action needs to be taken. What are you seeing happening out there? Yeah, so I think there are some good developments. Unfortunately, what's coming through the culture is, is so pervasive that Parents have to realize they can't wait for someone else to take action. They have to take action themselves because no one loves their kids like they do, and no one knows their kids like they do. So they need to look and and ask themselves, what are the influences on my child? And if your child's in public schools, realize that in spite of good people who are in there, this ideology, this understanding of the person is being pushed through that public school system. So their child is not going to escape it. And and so they have to think, how am I going to protect my child? If they can move their child to a faith-based school, a Catholic school, homeschool, that's preferable because then you're not only um, protecting them from a lot of really negative influences, you can really bring in the positive. You can really integrate your faith and, and character building and all those good things. So that's one action point, just to look and say, you know, what are the influences on my child in terms of education, in terms of friends? How do I need to protect them, shield them, but also cultivate good and positive influences? But then I think the other thing is parents need to be savvy. They need to understand exactly what's happening. And they need to be a little bit cautious about the so-called experts who are in their children's lives. Because unfortunately, we've seen from counselors to pediatricians uh, a tendency to buy into gender ideology and to drive a wedge oftentimes between the children and their parents, as if the parents either don't know anything or can't be trusted to make decisions that are good for their children. And so we see counselors and pediatricians and often teachers encouraging children to explore identity and and to reject their God-given identity as male or female, also to experiment in terms of sexuality, sexual orientation, attractions, behaviors, and cutting the parents out of that conversation. So it's important for parents to ask 
ask those experts who are in their children's lives where they stand, mm -hmm. what they think about the human person, what they believe, right. what are the, what are the values and, and beliefs and um, advice that they're going to be giving to our children. Yeah. Well, you have offered some great advice in this interview. I'm so grateful that you could join us. And as a former homeschooler myself, I think you mm -hmm. have some great ideas there. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public thank Policy you. Center. Thank you. Before we talk more about gender ideology, we've got a roundup of this week's news on the life front. Up first, North Carolina's state legislature advanced a bill to limit abortion at 12 weeks. The current limit for abortion in North Carolina is at 20 weeks, making it a destination for Southern women seeking the procedure. The bill raced through the state house and Senate thanks to a Republican majority in both chambers. It now sits on Governor Roy Cooper's desk. He promised to veto the bill, but the legislature can override his decision. Cooper is now traveling across his state in an attempt to strong-arm state Republicans to pull their support for this 12-week limit, which would save babies in the womb who can feel pain. And in Boston, a medical miracle. A team of doctors successfully performed a groundbreaking brain surgery on a baby in the womb, the first of its kind in the United States. The baby girl had a rare and dangerous brain condition that could have led to lifelong complications. She is now a month old and completely healthy. Up next, major news on efforts to restrict the dangerous chemical abortion drug mifepristone. The Supreme Court sent the case back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals a few weeks back. Now, a panel of three judges from that court will re-examine the case. The judges are Jennifer Walker Elrod, James Ho, and Corey Wilson. The three of them have been described as deeply conservative. The plaintiff in the case, whose goal is to stop mail-order abortions via mifepristone, is the group Alliance Defending Freedom. They've sued the Food and Drug Administration, claiming that they rushed the approval of these fatal drugs. We'll continue to keep you updated as the case progresses. And finally, Planned Parenthood, the world's largest abortion conglomerate, just released their annual report. The numbers show a decline in services provided, despite the fact that their government funding was increased in the 2021 to 2022 fiscal year. In that time, they received upwards of $670 million from President Biden's government. They used that money to end the lives of over 370,000 children. They also used it to ramp up their, quote, gender-affirming care, with over 40 of their affiliate locations providing services to encourage people to permanently alter their God-given gender. Coming up, a Catholic church hosts a blasphemous art exhibit promoting transgender ideology. I speak out. Plus, so-called gender-affirming care across the country. We look at which states allow the controversial practice and how some states are setting major limits to protect children. Welcome back to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Some people within our own church are promoting disordered gender ideology to the point of blasphemy. That is this week's Speak Out segment. At St. Paul the Apostle, a Catholic church in Manhattan, there's an art installment titled God is Trans, A Queer Spiritual Journey. 
The exhibit has caused uneasiness among some parishioners who are opposed to the church promoting such scandalous, perverted ideas. Others say it's not surprising to them, as the church frequently pushes progressive ideas. Our sister publication, Catholic News Agency, reports that the Archdiocese of New York is investigating how the exhibit came to be and are working to establish communication with the pastor at St. Paul's. We at Pro-Life Weekly reached out to the pastor as well with no response yet. This isn't the first time that such blasphemy has taken place. Some months ago at Trinity College in Cambridge, a man named Joshua Heath gave a perverted sermon at a traditional Anglican church, suggesting that features of Christ's body on the cross symbolized transgenderism. Let's be completely clear. Jesus Christ is a man who allowed himself to be brutally murdered to save our souls. God is not trans. He despises disorder, and his heart aches with pain and longs for confused and wandering souls to find their rest in him and in his mercy. It's particularly nauseating and despicable to mock our Lord and King with such insinuations. And when Heath was giving his sermon, some parishioners reportedly shouted out heresy and left in tears. That's no surprise. These stories are heartbreaking. It's essential that the Catholic faithful make their beliefs known and heard so that exhibits like these do not appear in sacred places anymore. We should view them with contempt and pray for the souls who perpetuate such blasphemy. The effort to promote gender ideology has entered into legislatures in states across the country as well. While many progressive states work to promote more surgeries on minors that cause permanent damage, other states are fighting back. So far, 16 states have made efforts to fully or partially ban gender-affirming care for minors, though a couple bans are currently blocked. One of the latest states to effort a ban on gender surgeries for minors, Nebraska. State lawmakers advanced a bill that would ban so-called gender-affirming care. And in an interesting twist, a new amendment to the bill now includes strengthening Nebraska's abortion limit from 20 weeks to 12 weeks. Marion Minor, the Associate Director of Pro-Life and Family Policy at the Nebraska Catholic Conference, joins me now. Marion, thanks for joining us today. Explain what this bill would do if signed into law and this interesting caveat that it could also stop abortions in the state um, in addition to banning these dangerous surgeries. Yes, thank you, Prudence. I'm happy to be here with you today. So LB 574, Nebraska LB 574, which is named the Let Them Grow Act, uh, introduced by Senator Kathleen Kouth here in Nebraska, uh, would protect minors, those under 19 in the state of Nebraska, um, from uh, interventions on the body, uh, which, in an, which would attempt to change their biological sex. And as you mentioned as well, there's been a recent amendment to the bill um, that would lower Nebraska. Nebraska is really not in a very good place right now. We've traditionally been a leader with regard to pro-life legislation. Mm. We're behind the ball now. Um, our legislature is a notoriously tough place to pass anything into law. And so this is an attempt as well to try and lower, um, to provide more protection for pre-born human beings um, all in one go. Yeah, that's that's helpful context. And, and Marion, in your view, as a Nebraskan and a Catholic, why is legislation like this needed now? Yeah, well, I mean, laws like, I think you brought up some states are going the other direction. Uh, Maryland recently um, passed legislation misnamed the Trans uh, Health Equity Act. And I think that's that's based upon two fundamental errors, that, that approach, the opposite approach to what Nebraska is attempting to do. 
first of all, there's there's a faulty anthropology uh, at work here, a misconception about who the human person is. Yeah. Um, the body is not an arbitrary thing that's foreign or incidental to the true self. As we know, the, the body is a beautiful and wonderful gift, um, but some really do feel a sense of incongruence between between their body and, and the soul or the mind. Um, the human person, of course, is body and soul. Um, this is a truth that's accessible to anyone through the exercise of reason. It's really richly uh, treated by Pope St. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes effort to let ourselves to be persuaded otherwise. Um, and that is engaged in that effort to persuade us otherwise, especially parents who are in a very difficult place uh, with a child who's feeling this sense of incongruence. Um, that's engaged in um, by uh, an industry that, like the abortion industry, um, has a very, very lucrative financial interest um, in exploiting uh, th- those those feelings and exploiting the vulnerable. Mm. Um, so yeah. states states like Nebraska now, on the other hand, um, who are attempting to pass legislation in the other direction to to protect young people and their parents, um, recognize it has become necessary to protect adolescent children and their parents from a new predatory pseudo-medical industry that, like the abortion industry, profits richly off of the exploitation of vulnerable people. Mm. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's a really important point, that connection between the abortion industry and this this gender ideology that's being pushed. Marion, do you think this bill is going to become law? I know you mentioned it's hard to pass anything in Nebraska, but do you think kind of lumping these two issues together is going to be effective? I think it will. Um, we attempted to pass stronger pro-life legislation, which we thought we actually were going to get done this session. As I said, um, because of our unique structure in Nebraska, we have a unicameral legislature. Since we don't have a second house to check legislation and to balance, um, we have a notoriously um, difficult process that has a very, very high bar to break a filibuster. So anything that's deemed controversial uh, is going to be subject to filibuster. And we have essentially we have a two-thirds majority vote that's necessary to break that, which I is, I think, the highest bar in the country. Mm. So um, we we believe we do have the votes now, which is good, but we've got no room for error. Um, this is something that uh, the vast majority of Nebraskans support. This kind of policy. It's something that the vast majority of the legislature supports. Uh, it's just going to be a question of whether we can hold together that two-thirds majority to, to get it over the line, and I think we will. Right, right. Well, that's very encouraging, and we'll continue to track this. I just want to ask you one quick question before I let you go. Um, what else is being done at the Nebraska Catholic Conference to really promote life and pro-family values in your state? Yeah, well, we are blessed, uh, I think, particularly in Nebraska with— um, a very strong family culture. And that's something that we don't want to um, take for granted. It's something that is constantly in need of um, shoring up the foundations and upon and, and building upon those foundations. Mm. So the Catholic Conference along uh, here in Nebraska, along just like Catholic conferences all over the country, uh, is really focused on family, on policy that would strengthen the family, recognize and protect the human person and that person's dignity. Um, and pass laws, uh, help to pass laws, help our legislatures pass laws that are conducive to the common good. Mm. So we're constantly engaged in that. Um, there's a particularly heavy focus on life and on family and on the dignity of the human person at the Catholic Conference. 
and um, that's what we do. We are we aim to be a prophetic witness in the legislature, and we're we're blessed here to have a great family culture that we can build on, and also a great team here at the Catholic Conference to help that mm. come to pass. Amen. Well, thank you for all the work that you're doing in Nebraska, Marion Miner of the Nebraska Catholic Conference. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Prudence. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Don't forget you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. Or send us a message by emailing prolifeweekly at EWTN.com. We love to hear from you. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.